following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Father God, we're so grateful that um, you're just such a kind God. We're so thankful that you have sent your son to come and to dwell amongst us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're grateful that at one point in your life, you were an adolescent. Um, You hit all of these stages of life that we're going to talk about. You went through them and you did them perfectly. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that we have your perfect record imputed to us, your righteousness given to us. Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you have been sent uh, to come and to dwell among us as a church, to apply the work of Christ to our hearts. We're grateful, Holy Spirit, that you open up the word to us, making it alive. Um, And so we pray now... um, God, that you would grant us mercy as we discuss uh, this topic, as we go through and we think about um, think about what it means to dig in with adolescence, uh, just something our culture doesn't really think about very much. Uh, God, I pray you'd give us a passion for these kids. You'd give us a desire and a drive to see them ministered to you. And then, Lord, uh, we pray that you would bring our children to you. Well, this is the cry of our hearts, that you'd bring our children to you. And so, God, and we know this is uh, the work of your spirit, so we pray that you would do that. Lord, we pray that you be with me tonight. Um, God, I'm a weak man, uh, full of sin, um, no wisdom on my own. God, I pray you would grant us wisdom, grant me wisdom, grant me clarity of speech. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. My name is Joel Fitzpatrick. I am uh, the son. Yes, I am the son of Phil and Elise Fitzpatrick, at least at our pre-conference. My sister is Jessica Thompson. You might have read books by her. We're kind of the Von Trapp family counselors. Um, <laughs> We kind of go around doing this stuff. George Scipione is my father-in-law. I'm married to uh, his daughter. Eileen is my mother-in-law. And my wife and I have often discussed how our kids are going to be kind of this perfect storm of biblical counseling. It's like God was sitting in heaven was like, let's give him a little Fitzpatrick and a little Scipione. And then boom, it's like my kids. So we'll see what they end up doing. But I'm Joel. I'm just a normal guy. I've been working with kids. I love kids. Um, I'm sure you guys love kids as well. Um, And I hope tonight we kind of come out of here ringing in our hearts is not just that we love kids, because that's a great thing, but that's not good enough. What I hope we come out of here tonight kind of ringing in our hearts is, is this, that, that because God loves our kids, because God loves our kids, we can move towards them in the midst of their difficulties. And we can share with them words of life, um, words of truth. So that's essentially where we're going tonight. We're going to look at that. We're going to break that statement apart. And then we're going to see how that works itself out in the church. I talk fast. 
So, and I drank some coffee. I'm kind of like, if you've ever seen the, the movie Hoodwinked, I'm kind of like that little squirrel on Hoodwinked when they drink coffee. Like, ah! So if I start going too fast, then just ask me to slow down. It's not a big deal. I won't be offended. So why talk about this subject? Why talk about the subject of counseling adolescents in the church? Well, it's my contention that middle school and high school are some of the most difficult times in a person's life. They're some of the most frustrating times, I think, for adults to try to identify with because we've moved on. At times, we don't know what's going on. I mean, I'd assume you're like me. And at times, I don't know what's going on with these kids. Um, Or even how to approach them to ask the question of what's happening in their lives. I can remember the first time I encountered this awkward situation, right? And maybe you can identify with this. I don't know. But I went outside of church one day. And there was this kid, a young guy, in our church, and I saw him, and he looked totally depressed. I mean, he just read it all over his body, um, his body language. He was slumping, he was sad, he was sullen, he was on his cell phone, and he was all alone. No one was around him, and he was just sitting there. Um, I looked at this kid, and I knew that I should go over there and talk to him. I knew in my heart, I was like, man, Joel, just go over and and say hi to him. Be a friend to this kid. This kid needs a friend. Um, But sadly, um, I didn't do it. He was on his phone, right? And you you start making that excuse. Well, maybe he's doing something important. I mean, the dude was like 12. It's like, what does he have to do on his cell phone that's important on a Sunday morning? You know, you make up these excuses, right? And I made it up there. Um... I thought to myself, well, he's not my kid, so I'm just going to let his parents deal with it. You know, um, what was I to do? What could I do? Let me ask you, what would you do? Would you even notice? Would you even have eyes to see the kid who's sitting there? How do we as counselors and as adults and as friends friends of people with kids who are going through this stage of life, how do we open our eyes to our adolescence and our church? And how do we get other people bought into it so that they have a fire and a passion in their hearts to want to see these kids grow and shape and be molded into the image of Christ? How do we do that? How do we help them at the intersection of faith and their struggles? You see, all too often, I think the children of our congregation, and especially our teenagers, our adolescents, are kind of left to fend for themselves. One of the most difficult parts of their lives, you know, as they grow and they become adults, they're facing so many difficulties, so many changes, right? Changes in their body, Changes in the way their mind works, changes in their relationships, changes in their levels of responsibility. And so when I talk about adolescence today, let me just kind of define that for you. I'm talking about that stage of life 
from awkward to, or really awkward to just slightly less awkward, right? Um, nine to about 19, right in that range, nine to 18 or 19. And right when they come into middle school and they're exiting out and going to college. And I think that especially our modern teenagers face difficulties. They're just so mind-blowing. Um, the rampant, easy, free access to pornography on your cell phone, um, on your kid's iPod, uh, apps like Snapchat, where they can take pictures of themselves and send it to someone else anonymously without them knowing who they are. Um, things like ghosting apps where they can hide apps from their parents so their parents have no idea what's even on their phone. Um, all of these things. But it's not just the electronics, right? It's the bullying that goes on in schools. And that bullying does take an electronic form, right, through Facebook and all of these sort of social media things where people bully kids, kids bully each other. But the bullying that goes on in school, um, to the rise of killings and shootings in school, there's always this sort of fear and change and difficulty that, I mean, as a kid, I don't ever remember having to face. I mean, heck, the closest thing I got to looking at porn was seeing my mom's or my dad's swimsuit issue or whatever it was, you know, that came in before mom got it and put the black marker to the whole thing or threw it in the garbage, right? And here our kids are, they can just get it like that. You see, our modern teenagers face these difficulties and challenge, challenges that we may think are out of our ability to be able to help. We may, we may look at them and we may say, man, how the heck am I going to, I don't even know what an app is. Like, how am I supposed to find a ghosting app? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what is this? And yet we can take heart. In God's word and in scripture's admonition that there's nothing that overtakes man that's not common. There's no sin that overtakes us. That's not common to man. So today we're going to talk about, tonight we're going to talk about counseling teens in the church in four ways. I'm going to try to be really explicit about this because I didn't turn in an outline. So I know you're just staring at a blank page saying, oh baby, talk slower. So the first one is this, God's love for our children and then you can put a colon, let the little children come to me. The Bible puts a lot of emphasis on kids. I wonder if you've ever noticed that, especially adolescent kids. It's fascinating when you start to think through it. Right? What does Jesus do with kids? It says, let them come to me. Um, get the picture, right? Kids coming to Jesus... Disciples saying, stop, no kids around Jesus, this is a no kid zone, and Jesus saying, no, wait, no, kids, come to me. You see, Jesus cares about our children, he welcomes them. Timothy, um, Timothy, you know, First Timothy, the pastor in the New Testament, Timothy was a young man, probably mid to late 20s, early 30s, somewhere in there. And I know that kind of pushes the bounds of adolescence, but God still wants young people to be shaped and molded into people who can go on into ministry. 
at a young age. Think of David, right? King David, when he killed killed Goliath. I mean, dude wasn't even able to go out with the army yet. He was still at home tending the sheep. All he was doing there was bringing cheese and bread to his brothers and the rest of the guys. And yet David goes out, kills Goliath, chops his head off, then takes his sword, takes his head, leads Israel into battle, wiping out the Philistines, and then comes back to the tent of Saul, all as a young man. Um, Daniel. Daniel, you know, the book of Daniel. It's called a youth without blemish when he's brought into Nebuchadnezzar's house. And then interprets dreams. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, this is kind of shocking to us in our modern context. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was probably between 13 and 15 years old when she had Jesus. Um, I mean, we're not talking about like, hey, I want to have a career first. And then I'll have kids. Then I'll have Jesus, God. So wait, Holy Spirit, wait for me to get there. No. She's 13 to 15, and she's entrusted with the care of the Son of God. The prophet Joel is quoted also by the Apostle Paul, saying that young men will dream dreams. The promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17 is picked up by the Apostle Paul, saying that this covenant... Actually, this is the Apostle Peter, I'm sorry, that this covenant is made to you and to who? Your children and your children's children. It's not just your children, but it's your children's children. You see, there's this emphasis throughout Scripture that our faith is not just to be an adult faith. It's not just like pat kids on the head. Yeah, you're great. I'm glad you professed faith in Christ. Wait till you're an adult, then I'll take you seriously. No. It's one that needs to be shared with our children. It needs to shape their lives. It needs to shape their thinking. And this is key for us understanding the reason for why we counsel teens. It's because God cares for our teens. He cares for children. And He wants them to love Him. He desires for the faith that we've received to be passed down to our children and then to their children and to their children. And it's during these teen years that we as a church get the opportunity, we get the pleasure, the joy of being involved in shaping and molding these kids' lives into Christ's image. We get to, to be a part of that process. Uh, I, have a, I have a friend named Rip Pratt. I don't know if any of you know Rip, but Rip's awesome, and he's got a great mustache. Um, he might actually be here. If you see a guy with a phenomenal mu- mustache, chances are it's Rip. Um, he's been doing youth ministry for how long, Skip? I mean, 30-something years, 40 years. I mean, the guy is, is just super legit. And um, I heard him say this once. He said that working with youth is kind of like getting the opportunity to work with wet cement. Now, I'm a construction guy. Um, I think everyone, though, can picture wet cement, right? Um, You get the opportunity to set the forms of the cement. And then that cement of faith gets poured in and the kid's life gets poured in, right? 
And then you get to come along with the nice little trowel and you get to move it over and you get to shape it and you get to form it and you get to fill it in. You see, we get that opportunity to shape and to mold these kids before the wet cement dries. And then it has to have a jackhammer to come and break it up and redo it. We get this opportunity when kids are going through the adolescent phase to aid their parents and their pastors in shaping and forming these kids into the image of Christ to help them think wisely about issues that they're facing. But most importantly, we get this opportunity to help them think about and understand what it means to be united to Christ to find their identity in Him when they're going through this time where they're like, who the heck am I? My body's changing. Everything's changing. Or, even better than that, well, maybe not better, but equally as good, we have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. Every Sunday. I mean, just think about this. What? It's like God takes this little present and just drops it in our lap every Sunday, right? Every Sunday... At church, in your middle school and high school youth group, there is a ripe harvest waiting for somebody, a laborer, to come along and to pluck it. And so, as counselors, as friends, as disciplers, when we work with adolescents, we get this amazing opportunity to participate and to show God's love for our teens. That moves us to the second point. The second point is this. These kids, their walk with Christ, their walk with Christ is a community project. Their walk with Christ is a community project. After church, how many of us have uh, looked over in the direction of the youth? You know, like the youth crowd. And I thought Heath's example was awesome, so I'm going to totally rip it. Um, the youth are kind of like the zebra, right? They're over there and they're kind of grazing. And they're just kind of sitting there all in like a little pack. And they're all kind of dressed the same. They look the same, so you can't really single one of them out, you know? I mean, that's like the zebra's herd mentality, right? All the stripes on their bodies, the lions can't single them out, right? They're all kind of herded together. So how often after church have you looked over and you've seen, have you seen um, an adult interacting positively with the kids? How often does that happen? Often, not so often. I'll tell you at my church, it almost never happens. Um, nine times out of ten, pack of kids, right? Adolescents, little kids running around and adults mingling with the little kids, and then pack of adults. And if one of the adults breaks off to go to the pack of the young kids, they're like the zebras, dude. They're just they're gone all over the place, right? <laughs> like we're out of here. What's this adult coming for? You know. Um, When was the last time um, you asked an adolescent who wasn't your child what video game they were playing and actually cared about the answer? When was the last time you asked what book they were reading or what music they were listening to 
and were able to interact with them over their music and their reading. You see, I think that's symptomatic of this problem. The problem is that there are just not very many stable adult relationships for adolescents when they go through this period of change in their lives. And so who do they go to, right? I mean, you know, they go to their friend at school, okay? Um, They go to find wisdom where there is no wisdom, (laughs) another adolescent. Um, They go to find, they they might reach out to a teacher, but, you know, God knows what that teacher is saying to them. And yet it's here at this time in their lives that we as friends and disciples and you guys are going to get sick of me saying that this over and over again, but I'm going to drive it into your brains. It's at this time that we get the opportunity to move towards these kids and to shape them and mold them into the image of Christ, especially in areas where counseling is necessary. But I think that most churches, and listen, I'm not, I'm not pointing out anybody's church because my church does this too. And I'm the youth guy. And I talk this way all the time at church about youth ministry. Um, I think that most churches make the mistake of putting all of the interaction with kids, especially adolescent kids, solely on the shoulders of the youth guy and the volunteers in the youth ministry. It's kind of like adults will help until they hit nine, and then every kid has the plague until they're 19. And then it's like, okay, we'll start to get involved over here when they're in young adult ministry. And I want to suggest to you tonight that this view of ministry is completely short-sighted. And it doesn't really serve our kids. Um... Why do I say that? We'll look at it two ways. First, the historical argument. I don't, listen, I don't mean to be offensive at all when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways um, because it needs to be said. It really wasn't until about the 1940s or the 1950s when youth ministry was introduced into the church. Um, I was reading a book about this because this is one of the things that I wrestle with being a youth pastor. Which I don't, I, I don't even call myself a youth pastor anymore because I think it's kind of a ridiculous term. But working in youth ministry, I was reading a book about this. And you can actually track this sort of, uh, this, I don't know, better word, the split, this bifurcation in adult and youth ministry. You can track from that time till now and plot it right along the same course as the disintegration of the family and our culture. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence. You see, for 1920-some-odd years, the church functioned well with youth integrating with adults, both working together in what I think is a biblical model, growing each other into the image of Christ. For 1920 years, it worked. Until 1950s America. Second reason I think that this is completely short-sighted um, and doesn't really serve our kids is because I just don't think it's the biblical model. Uh, break out your Bibles if you've got them. Let's let's quickly run through some scripture here. 
Turn to Galatians 6, if you would. This is kind of the chair passage, right? I mean, I think it's one of the chair passages for biblical counseling. Um, Apostle Paul writing to the church of Galatia. Galatians 6, we'll just look at verse 1. I'm not going to get into various arguments, but Galatians 6, 1, right? Uh, Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, you may read that and say to yourself, whoa, 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 Joel, where are kids? Well, let me tell you. Um, It was the practice in the early church, um, in the church of Galatia, For the entire church to be gathered together, and the man who was their pastor or their elder, their their shepherd, to read a letter like this to the entire church, adolescents included. And so, I would assume, I think it's a safe assumption, a fair assumption, that some of those adolescents were saved. I think it's a fair assumption. So when Paul says, brothers, who's he talking to? Everyone in the church. Adolescents. Adults. You see, we think when he says brothers, that just means me. Right? I'm the adult. You're the kid. No. (laughs) Right? No, it doesn't work that way. How do I know? He goes on to say this. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual... This word spiritual is kind of an important word for the Apostle Paul throughout all of his letters. You know that he uses in Romans, he talks about people who live by the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. You know those two words, right? Um, I'm going to break out some seminary nerd on you here because I just graduated and I can, so why not, right? I paid that much for my education, Um, right? Fleshly, sarkokoi. Sarks, flesh, right? Spiritual, pneumaticoi. What word does he use here? Pneumaticoi. He's talking about you. You who have the spirit in you. There's, there's, there's no distinction in age. He doesn't say you who have the spirit in you who are over 30. Um, He doesn't say you who are elders in the church. No, he says brothers. And then that's directly linked ahead to you people who are spiritual, who are led by the spirit, not by the flesh. What are they to do? Well, when they see their brother caught in sin, they're to restore them. Now, I'm going to I'm going to go a little I'm going to vamp a little bit on this. They're to restore them. Restoration is to be the goal of our counseling teens. I'll give you a second to write that down because it's important. Restoration is the goal of our counseling teens. How often when you counsel a teenager, an adolescent, and they do something incredibly stupid as adolescents are wont to do... um, and you're just like, dude, just don't do that anymore. Like, <laughs> you know better, right? And then we stop there. 
We haven't actually restored them back to the church. We haven't restored them to their family. We haven't restored them to God. We haven't done the work that Paul's called us to do, which is restoration. And notice how he says we're to do that restoration. What's, what's, the, what's the spirit that we're supposed to do it in? Are we supposed to be harsh? How many of you here today can say, um, when you see a teen or an adolescent, your own particularly, that you seek to restore them in gentleness? No, I mean, normally we want to throttle them. You know, and it's not like, look, look, I'm not saying that we're doing it to be jerks, because we aren't. We're doing it because we love them, and we've probably done the same stupid thing that they're doing. You're like, dude, just trust me. Don't do this. And yet, a spirit of gentleness needs to be what moves us towards these kids. Why? Why would you do this? Well, because... Man, um, if there was ever a gentle man who moved towards someone else, it was Christ. It's what he did for us. Um, just to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Next uh, passage, 1 Corinthians 12. This is a great passage. I love this one. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Verse twelve, verses twelve, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna read uh, a couple selections all the way down to the end of the chapter. So follow along. I'll try to remember to say where I'm at. I may just read it all for the fun of it because it's all good. Uh, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that have, that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you 
are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We'll stop there. There's so much here. I mean, this is just phenomenal. I love the picture of a giant eye kind of rolling down the street like, hey, where's my hearing? Um, Anyway, so this is my own brain. Maybe that's why I work in youth ministry. Um, This passage is so helpful, right? When we think about the church, the church, the broad church, and it should form the way that we see one another in the church, But I want you to think about, just for a second, I'll even give you a second to think about it. How do you think that this helps us to understand adolescence in the church and working with adolescence in the church? Think about it for a second. That was more than a second. I can't help it. Well, right, we're all willing to say... I got it, Joel. They need us. Right? Isn't that right, Joel? Well, yeah, that's true. But wait for it. We need them. We need them too. Look down at verses 21 to 26. How do I know that? Right? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Well, let me ask you. Are there Christian adolescents in your church? Yes. Can you say to the Christian adolescents, I have no need of you? No. Let's keep reading. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Let me ask you, when you look at adolescence, do you think to yourself, that's a weaker part of the body? Uh, Typically, right? We typically look at them like, nah, adolescents, we can do with or without them, right? They can go off to the youth ministry and that's cool. If they want to stay in here, that's cool. No, Paul says they're indispensable. Indispensable. What is Paul arguing for? He's saying that we all need each other. Adults need Adolescents, adolescents need adults. We all need each other to be the most fulfilled, flourishing, functioning Christian that we can be so that we can build one another up into the image of Christ and encourage one another. I was vamping on this for a little bit as I was preparing this. Poor people who work at my church, they have to listen to me vamp on this stuff. Um, I was telling a friend about this, and he asked this great question. He said to me, Joel, let me ask you a question then. What do you think you can learn from a 15-year-old? I stopped, and I was like, ooh, huh. Well, what does Paul say? He says a whole heck of a lot more than I think I can. I need that 15-year-old to be functioning and flourishing for me to flourish. If that part of the body is hurting and is injured, this part of the body is hurting and injured. Why should you be involved in counseling adolescents? Because you need them. (laughs) You need them. They need you for us to function properly. God has taken what we would consider the lesser or deserving lesser honor and gives them honor. Philippians 2.4. This is the last one I'm going I'm to vamp on in this section. Then you guys get a little bit more in a minute. 
right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Gentiles eat pork chops. <laughs> Philippians 2.4. <coughs> Paul says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so what's Paul talking about here? This is in the broader context of this. It's about unity. Unity in the church. Unity in thought. Unity in love for one another. He's talking about unity. Um, Being in full accord and having one mind. Then he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What's Paul describing here? Well, think just for a second with me about the two great commandments. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. What's Paul describing here? He's saying that as we flourish together in unity, all members of the church, children, adolescents, Teenagers, young adults, adults, more mature adults, more and more mature adults, as we all function together in unity and in love for one another, the body flourishes. So, how do we do that? When we look out, when we walk out of church and we see those kids, we say, oh man, it's my interest to go talk to my buddy over here. Because I was checking out that new shotgun, and I really want to buy it. And he's, he shoots birds, so I, you know, maybe I'll go talk to him. Or, or, oh, you know, maybe I just talk to this guy about a truck because I don't want to talk to them, right? Um, I just, oh, adolescence. Oof. No, he says, deny yourself and live for the other person. So what are some considerations we need to take in mind? This is our third point. Adolescence, a time of changes. Don't ask me where I got these quotes. I've read them in like 40 different places. So I'm not even going to be able to tell you where I got them. Just trust me, these people said this stuff. (laughs) If you really want me to chase them down for you, I will. Uh, Aristotle once said... That youth are heated by nature as drunken men by wine. That's a great analogy, right? Youth are heated by nature as drunken men by wine. Shakespeare once said, I would that there were no age between 10 and 23. For there's nothing in between but getting wenches with child, wronging the ancestry, stealing and fighting. If you think back to more Christian uh, things, right? Augustine, when was the time when he fled from God? When does he point it to? He points out his adolescent years where he went and he stole and he took a prostitute and had children with her. Later on denied her, but I mean, whatever. Um, The adolescent years usher in this time of change. Uh, Changes both physically and psychologically, and we as counselors need to think about the impact of these changes on our kids. How many of you have ever, when speaking to a kid in the adolescent years, said the words, you know better? 
How many of you have ever said that? I have. I mean, it's fine. You don't have to be embarrassed. I've said it. I'll, this is the royal raise, uh, hand raise um, for all of us. I'll raise it. Or ask the question when you're bemoaning the sin of, a, of, a, of an adolescent in your church. Ask the question, what was he thinking? <laughs> or was he even thinking at all? <laughs> You see, we get frustrated with adolescents because so often we see them and they're able to process these like super complex things in school. Um, complex math equations. They're able to read a ton and remember a bunch. And then they go out and they do just like ridiculously stupid things. And you're just like, what happened? Where's the disconnect? I can remember one time I was counseling a teenager and this kid did something that was just, I mean, it was immensely stupid. Um, We both agreed that it was immensely stupid, so I don't feel bad saying that. Um, When we had time to talk about it afterward, he said that at the time it seemed like a really good idea. He was like, man, this this is going to be fun. I'm going to do it, you know? Um, But now in retrospect, it was a really bad idea. Um, And when I asked him why it seemed like such a good idea, at the time he said, I don't know why. It just felt right. And it kind of seemed like it would be a good time. So I did it. Now, listen, there's no denying, okay? I want you to hear this really clearly. There's no denying that sin plays a major part in this, okay? Sin Sin is a massive part of why our kids do crazy things. But I think that to be nuanced counselors, we need to also understand that there are immense physiological things happening inside of our kids' bodies during this time. And it doesn't downplay the fact that they've sinned. I mean, we still need to deal with that issue. But it helps to shape and to color the way we think about the issues. So what are some of these changes? First of all, Through the adolescent years, the brain and the body, they're going through these massive changes. Um, The National Institute for Mental Health, you don't go to them for technique, but sometimes they come across good things. Um, They say that the brain reaches its highest volume of production of gray matter. Now, gray matter is that part of the brain that connects synapses. So it means their brain's just firing on all cylinders, right? Reaches its highest volume during adolescence. But the parts of the brain that aid in controlling or in, in control and controlling impulses, planning ahead, these things that we would say are like adult behavior that we expect out of our adolescence, which maybe we need to retool our expectations, but um, these things that we associate with adult behavior, those are some of the last things to come along in the brain. You see, I think this is key in understanding why kids understand, why they, why they can comprehend trigonometry, but they can't figure out why it's a bad idea to drive 100 miles an hour down the road. Second thing, there's also a lot of research that points to the conclusion that the parts of the brain that deal with emotions, with the emotions of adolescence, they're changing in dramatic ways. Now, listen, I'm going to say this again because I want to be super clear, as clear as I can be. This does not excuse sinful anger, 
giving in to lust, giving in to desires, I'm not excusing that at all. Those things are still sins. Okay, are we clear? Still sins. All right. But it does help us to understand why it seems that why it seems like adolescence emotions one second burn really hot in this way and the next second are really hot burning in this way um i can remember this as a teen or as a kid my dad could confirm this um there are plenty of times where it was like i would fluctuate between loving my parents and hating my parents and wanting to get away at all costs like four or five times in the span of five minutes like, you know it's like one minute i'm like oh mom i love you and the next i'm gonna kill you and then oh, i love you right and it's why it's because their emotions are changing radically changing the last thing that's happening in this time is puberty um, we can't underestimate how much this affects a kid's body i mean puberty is just gnarly it's bad so i'm a southern california boy so if i say dude and gnarly i'm sorry but alas it's kind of like heath drawing all of his words um <laughs> It's just bad stuff. It's crazy stuff. There's emotion, enormous changes that take place hormonally during puberty. Um, and these, these changes increase the desire for sensuous fulfillment. Now, I don't just mean like sexually sensuous, even though that's a part of it. But it radically increases the desire to have their senses fulfilled. Um, one guy... Um, one guy said this, a noted speaker said this in uh, his inaugural address to the New York Academy of Science. He said that this is one of the reasons why adolescents love gory music, or gory movies, loud music, fast roller coasters, and sex so much. Um, it's also the reason why the risk for injury and mortality is so much higher during the adolescent period. It's because their bodies are just going through these enormous changes. And so, you know, it's probably why the older people like shake their fist, you know, and you and your cursed rock and roll music and your skateboards and, um, no, they, they want this stuff. They have this drive and this desire for greater and greater fills uh, or thrills to, to, to fill this rush, to feel the rush. Now, listen, um, talking about counseling teens is kind of like talking about counseling Americans, right? I mean, it's just, there's a broad swath here. Um, not every American, even though we all share some things in common, we don't share everything in common. So not all teens react in the same way or function in the same way or change in the same way. But I think with these things in mind, the changes in their brain, the changes in their emotions, puberty, with these things in mind, we as counselors need to have discernment. We need to have discernment to see what led to this sin. What led to this action? Was it just weakness? Um, or was it actual sin inside of them? that was pushing them, that was drawing them to this? Or was it a mixture of both? We also need to be very careful, very nuanced. When we're talking to kids, when they're in 
struggles with their parents about why do you listen to loud music? Why do you, you know? And we need to be careful with parents as well to help them see your kids going through massive changes. Um, you need to understand that. Along with these various changes, adolescents are trying to figure out where they fit in the world. You see, so often we expect them to act like adults, and yet we don't give them the opportunity to fail. We put massive, massive uh, requirements on our kids. The kids in, in, uh, in my church, um, so often they come back to, to our youth meetings and whatnot, and I always ask the very first thing, how was your week? You know, what did you do? What was it like? What were your experiences? Like, I want to be a part of their world. Um, and so often they come back and they're like, yeah, you know, I had like four soccer matches in the last two games and I've all or the last two days and I've already started studying for my my, you know, AP courses. Oh, really? How many are you taking? Well, all of them are AP courses and I really have to get, you know, straight A's in all of my AP courses because, you know, UCSD and Stanford, those aren't good enough. I need to be in Harvard and Yale and Oxford and. They have all these massive stresses put on them. And they're just trying to figure out, who the heck am I? My body's changing. People are looking at me differently. My relationship with my parents is changing. Um, and all the work I do with kids, this is one of the most difficult areas to help them think through. Because they're having to make this transition from being a child where everything's provided for them, right? Uh, Mom tells them, no, you're not going to wear plaid shirt, striped shorts, and solid socks. You're going to wear something that actually matches, and this is the food you're going to eat, and this is the time you're going to wake up, and this is where you're going to be, and this is how you're going to brush your hair, and... Hey, by the way, have you gone to the bathroom yet? And right, where they're they're having their whole world kind of helicopter parented for them, right? They'll move over here, Johnny. No, now move over here, Johnny. They go from that world to pull straight A's in all AP courses, be in band, be in soccer, be in baseball, be in this, be in that. Oh, and don't forget, you need to do community service projects so you can put those on your resume so you can get into this great school. And so often, as they're making this transition, so often adults just leave them to their own devices to try to figure it out. And so, like we've said, our kids' lives have to be community projects. They desperately need us. And we desperately need them. So, fourth point. As counselors, we love this point. Because this point's the point where we're like, okay, tell us what to do. Is there a different methodology? Should we have a different methodology, a different way of counseling adolescents than we do adults? Well, this is a really, really difficult question to ask, so I'm going to totally squirm on it. Um, the answer is both no and yes. First, no. You see, the Bible is the same. Um, 
It's the same answers to the same problems over and over again. So does your methodology change? Do you change the answers that you give kids because they're adolescents? No, absolutely not. We need to be doggedly driving them back to Scripture as the source of all wisdom. Why? Because Christ speaks in Scripture. Because God talks to us in Scripture. So in one sense, no. But just like in any situation, we have to be able to adapt the way we speak those truths to our kids. Now, you may say, whoa, wait a second. That's like the, the, the um, express lane to liberalism, right? Um, hold on a second, Joel. Where do you get that? Well, I just point you right to the New Testament. Um, None of the Gospels are written the same. They're all written to different sorts of people with different things in mind. Um, Is 1 Corinthians the same as Philippians? No. Paul uses different examples to reach different sorts of people. Does the core message change? No, it doesn't. You see, God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. He, to use a technical term, he condescends so that we can comprehend him in whatever weak way that we can. God reveals himself, not just in words on a page, but in trees and grass and birds. God does all of these ways. He doesn't just show us himself in ways that please our brain, but in ways that pleases our nose and our taste buds. As we see his creativity, we smell and we, we, we smell the beauty of his senses, the way that he, he's created the world to be sensuous for us, to communicate something about himself to us. And so we need to be able to contextualize our counseling to fit with what our adolescent kids are experiencing in the world. We need to be able to move and shape our counseling so that it fits the world that they're functioning in. Now listen, um, most adults take that statement and they think that they need to start saying dude and like and totally, and they need to wear a mustache t-shirt, and, you know, they need to buy the really expensive... No, I mean, our kids need you to be you, but they need you to take your knowledge and communicate it to them in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can identify with. So when you're counseling them, you don't bring up... Um, examples that only an adult would identify with. You try to figure out what they identify with, right? This leads us back to the very beginning of the lecture when I asked, when have you ever asked a kid what video game they're playing, right? Well, how the heck are you supposed to know how to contextualize, how to speak to them in a way that they understand without interacting with their world some, (coughs) Pick up a teen lit book. 
Listen to some music that they listen to. Ask them, go out and buy the MP3 and listen to it. So you can interact with them. So that you can use it as a tool to reach them. In short, you need to counsel them in a language that they can understand. So what are we saying? First, we need to ground their identity in Christ. Remember, they're struggling to find out who the heck they are. If they're loved and accepted, they need to understand who they are in Christ. And so we need to start by grounding them in that. Second thing, this one sometimes is tough to swallow, but we need to be honest about difficult topics. Not crass, not crass, but honest and blunt. Trust me, by the time they've come to talk to you, they've talked to 50 of their other friends who've probably told them wild, crazy things that they heard from their friends that didn't make much sense, right? Um, We need to be honest and loving and gentle in confronting what they're hearing and replace it with honest descriptions of the situation. You see, the Bible's not prudish. If they took the Bible and they made the Bible into a literal film, um, I doubt any of us would feel comfortable walking in to watch it. But the Bible's not prudish. It's not prudish about violence. It's not prudish about sex. It's not prudish about rape. It's not prudish about molestation. It's not prudish about any of these things. And so when we talk about these things with our kids, we need to be honest. But we need to be doggedly driving them back to Scripture again and again and again and again. We need to see kids as long-term projects. Um, We can't see them as six- or eight-week counseling cases. But we need to see them as long-term projects where we can walk with them through adolescence. And so for... um, Well, let me just scoot back. Backtrack a second. We need to see them in light of who they will be. Right? We need to see them in light of who they will be. And then we need to help them along the path to getting there. So who should be involved? Typically, when I counsel a teenager... Um, I bring in a discipler um, after two or three weeks of meeting, which first of all, never meet with a kid alone. Never. Not, I don't care who the kid is. Never meet for counseling alone with a kid. Um, uh, having said that, I went out to breakfast with a kid this morning. <laughs> never meet with a kid alone. Um, you know, have wisdom about that sort of stuff. Uh, In our incredibly litigious society, all it takes is an accusation and you're ruined. Um, But what do I do? Typically within the first uh, week or two, I make a kid, uh, I I have it be a part of their homework assignment, um, to go find someone in the church, an adult, who they trust who's not their parents, to disciple them along the way, to come with them to the counseling cases, and then... Hey, double bonus, right? I'm training someone to counsel, and that person's walking with this kid. Bring in a discipler. Bring in parents. Um, Parents, God gave the kids parents. Um, It's the parents' primary role to be 
Um, the person who washes their children, dads especially, washes their children with the word. Um, bring in parents. And don't just assume because it's a girl she's going to want to bring mom. Um, I had a counseling case with one teen who was really struggling. Um, and that teen brought dad. Because dad was biological. She trusted him more than she trusted mom. So she brought dad with her. I have another teen who I'm counseling who's bringing mom. He's bringing mom with him because he trusts her more. Bring a parent in. Um, it's amazing what you see in, that, in the counseling room when parents and kids interact. It kind of opens up a lot of windows to areas where you're like, oh, maybe, maybe we do need to work on parents some as well as kids. So bring parents in. It aids in building proper relationships and trust in the home. And then who does the work? Well, Philippians 1.6 as well as 1 Thessalonians 5 talk about our sanctification. And Philippians 1 says, you know, he who began a good work in you, what? Will be faithful to complete it, right? Um, not when we want it to happen. Because <laughs> if it was me, it would be like the next day. Um, or maybe at the end of the hour. Um, no, in the day of our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, God makes this radical promise, I will sanctify you. Counseling teens, counseling adolescents, man, uh, being involved with them, some of the most difficult and yet rewarding times. It's a really beautiful thing. So, I've eaten up your hour. Um, that way I don't have to answer any questions. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let me pray, and then if you want to bail, you can. And if you want to stick around and ask questions, God bless you. You can see my dad or my father-in-law. No, I'll be here. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, uh, we're, we're grateful that you have come to us. And um, without that, we'd, we'd just be, we'd be done. Um, so, God, we're so grateful that you do that. And you make promises, and then you fulfill those promises. So, God, we pray that as we move towards adolescence in our church, that you would um, build up this desire inside of us and the people in our church to see these kids uh, shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. God, we pray that you would grant this uh, by your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.